book of Colossians. We're going to look at Colossians chapter 3. I'm going to read the first 14 verses of that chapter together. And before I get into reading that, I uh, just want to tell you a couple things. Uh, one is the completion of my next round of surveillance will take place a week from this Thursday. So October 12th, I go to Duke for the rest of my tests. And so if y'all are want to pray and think of me, please do that. Uh, it'll be a week from this Thursday. And so as I get closer and closer to those tests, I always get a little more anxious. Even though the first part of the test came back great, um, I still have the rest to do, and something could happen. And uh, so any time you think of me and want to pray for that, please do. I'll update you as soon as I know something uh, the next Sunday. So that's a week from this Thursday. Uh, next, uh, we haven't done this in a few weeks. So let's remember, we are thinking about, we're, we're looking at the whole Bible this year. And we've tried to summarize that down into three numbers, three, four, and five, right? So let's see if we can go through these together. Uh, four stands for the four parts of the story. So when you look at the Bible, it has, it's a whole story that has four parts. What are those four parts? Can you tell me? Creation, rebellion, redemption, restoration. Great. Uh, five are little... Uh, if four is the, the framework, then five are kind of putting a little more meat on the bones. So these are five statements by which if you are thinking about Christianity and wonder, well, what do Christians believe? You can think about these five things. Uh, if you're engaging with those about spiritual things, this is not a bad place to start either. So here are five summary statements of what historically God's people have always believed. Number one, God's always had a people. Remember this? He's always been building his that's right. That's part of the four-part story. It's part of it. Two, y'all remember this one? Evil is real, but never gets the last word. Isn't it nice to know that God's given us a framework to, to believe that? So when we see evil, we can say, that is wrong. And we can live with the hope that it never gets the last word. Isn't that great? Not even death gets the last word. How about that? It's a beautiful thing. Three. Remember the third one? Grace. God initiates, pursues, and saves. Four. He did it. Jesus actually did something through his life, death, and resurrection. He is a literal savior. He literally saved people. He didn't just die to make salvation possible. He didn't die to make you savable. He literally saved his people. That's, that's very comforting. And five, everything is moving toward Jesus. Everything's moving toward Jesus. Your life, my life, everything in the world that's going on, every current event, whatever's happening, everything in the Bible, everything's moving toward Jesus. So if you wrestle with those things, uh, take those five in, you'll have a really good understanding about what it means to look at the world the way that a follower of Jesus should look at the world. That leads us to three. What do you think the three is? You remember this? Our three loves. What are they? Love God. Love people. Love the city. Love the place where God has put us. All right. So if you get that three, four, and five, you're going to have a pretty good understanding of what we're about as a church, how we're trying to understand the Bible together, and what we believe. Let's look, listen to this. Colossians 3, uh, 1 through 14. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, where Christ is, 
seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. In these, you too once walked while when you were living in them, but now you must put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in the knowledge after the image of its creator. Here, there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgive each other as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. Let's pray. We thank you, Lord, that on this day we get to gather together and here you call us to worship and respond. We even get to admit and tell the truth about what's really going on in our lives and admit our failings and shortcomings and admit that we need your forgiveness and your mercy all the time. And we thank you that we get to sit under your word and get to learn more about what you say. And we ask, Holy Spirit, that you would convince us more and more of the truthfulness the practicalness of God's word and that you would do that Holy Spirit by bringing us to Jesus, that you would help us to see our Savior, you, Jesus, as our everything. So open up our minds and hearts, give us understanding, bring us to the good news today because we need it. We pray in your name, Jesus, amen. So this week I was thinking about tools that all of us use every day that, that make our lives kind of work, you know? For some of you, you use, you use tools every day like, uh, you know, like shovels and other equipment and even heavy machinery. Some of you use, um, in the medical world, use medical tools and tests and all kinds of things that you have to deal with every day. Uh, some of you more than likely have all kinds of software that enables you to actually do your job every day. Put this here, put this there, understand this, understand that, do this, do that. All of us have these tools that we use every day that make our lives go. Well, one tool that all of us uses all the time is our phones. Do you ever thought about that? I mean, I'm sure you have, but you do realize that we use our phone to like tell us the weather we don't have to wait until the five or six o'clock news anymore. We use it for alarm clocks. 
We use it maybe even to tell us how we're feeling and how we're doing or how we're sleeping. We use it to tell time. Um, we use it to interact with other people. We use it to kill time. Sometimes we really, really like it. At other times, we really, really hate it and can't stand it. But we use our phones all the time for everything. We, use our, we can use our phones to escape. We use our phones to document things. We use our phones all the time. What I wanna show you from the passage today is that there is nothing that is more useful in your life and in my life than the four-part story. There's nothing that is more useful in your life than the four-part story. Remember that four-part big thing we're thinking about this year with the Bible? Yeah, nothing more useful in your life and in my life than the four-part story. What I wanna show you today as we think about that is this, uh, how these verses fit together, uh, what we need to do, and how we're gonna do it. Got me? That's the roadmap. So we're thinking about this idea of how useful the four-part story is, and we're gonna start here. I wanna show you how these verses fit together. Verses one through four is one section, and verses five through the end of the chapter, verse 17, which we only read up to verse 14, is, then, is another section. And did you notice the word that verse five virtually starts with? Therefore, did you see that in verse five? It's right there. That means that verse five is the conclusion of what has been said in verses one through four. That means that what is said in verse four, Paul draws things out of that and makes conclusions and then says, okay, if this is true, then this is what we need to be doing. You know, you realize how often we see things and experience things in our everyday life and then draw conclusions? Like this is something that we do all the time. Uh, parents, you uh, smell a stinky diaper, you draw the conclusion, time to change this thing, right? You, you see something coming up on your calendar, oh, I got 15 minutes, you draw the conclusion, I need to leave, I need to get there. We draw these kind of conclusions all the time. And this morning what we're gonna do is we're gonna start with verse five and following, and then we're gonna land on verses one through four. So that's how these verses fit together, one through four and five to the end. Here's the second place we're going today. We already did the first one. How about that? That was quick, wasn't it? The second one is, what do we need to do? What do we need to do? Well, verse five and following tell us what we need to do. It's summarized in this way. Look at verse nine and 10. Put off and put on. Did you catch that when we, when, did you hear it when we read it? Put off and put on. What do we need to do? Put off and put on. When you think about putting off, notice verse five and verse eight. Gives us two lists, things that we're supposed to put off. Put this off and put this off. Now, those two lists are actually related. Let me show you. Think about this in verse five. He says this. Sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, covetousness, which is idolatry. What Paul is getting at there is this is what we're supposed to do. Those are all expressions of selfishness. Sexual immorality is when we give in to desires to satisfy our sexual feelings that's outside the bounds of what God has set up in marriage between a man and a woman. And there's not one of us that doesn't struggle with sexual impurity. Not one of us. 
But that's, an, that's a selfish thing. When we go outside the bounds of what God says, it's just because we want to serve ourselves. Covetousness, we are tempted all the time to just live for the next thing that we can get. Materialism, things, passion, evil desires. You get it? It's describing selfishness in which we are just living our lives thinking that I want to satisfy all the desires that I have. Meaning I never really tell myself no. Anybody struggle with that? Isn't it nice to say yes to yourself? Isn't it nice to treat yourself? But do you ever say no? Does Dave ever say no? You see, to not put off is to live our lives just by what we feel and live by our emotion. And we feel a certain way and we think, well, I gotta do that. I want this, I want that. And he's saying, you gotta put that away. But here's what happens, verse eight. When we live in, a, in selfish ways, which all of us do, this is what happens emotionally. Listen to this, anger, wrath, malice, slander, obscene talk, which is really abusive language. What he's describing here is this. Um, there is a buildup and a progression in these words. When, when we don't get what we want, when we're living for self and we don't get what we want, guess what happens? We get angry. And then we become settled in our anger and therefore we have these emotional outbursts. That's the next word that's described in verse eight. Not just anger, but wrath, right? Can you, any, y'all experience this? You didn't get your way and you got mad about it? And then it led to an outburst at some point? And then what it led to from there is, uh, what's the next one that he has there? Um, malice, where you become committed to not liking or changing your position about these people or this situation. And that then leads to slander. And that leads to abusive language toward people. Do you see the progression? You see, when, when we try to live selfish lives and it doesn't go the way we want, under the surface is all this emotional stuff <clears throat> in which we get angry and settled in our anger and explosive in our anger. And we end up not liking people and saying things that aren't true about them, but we're just mad. So we use language that isn't true and we hurt other people. Has anyone ever done that? You see, it's not just that these verses, the two lists in verse five and verse eight describing what it means to put off, which is what we're supposed to do, it's not just that they're related to each other. It's not just that they complement each other. And they, they really, really fit together. Let me show you what I mean. In verse five, he lists evil desires and then concludes that after covetousness with idolatry. Here it is. Not only are these verses describing selfishness and how we are all prone to that, but these verses are describing for us that we all have idols. And those idols are expressions of our desires. We desire things and then we make them an idol. And when those idols are threatened in our lives, we become angry and malicious and we lash out and we'll say slanderous things and we'll use abusive language. 
which means that we need to do some thinking about, well, how in the world can I identify my idols, right? How in the world can I identify what the idols are in my life? If God is telling me that I have to put off certain things, and putting off certain things actually means I gotta do battle with my idols, what are my idols? So let's do some thinking about this. Let's think about our idols. No surprise. Uh, start with your uh, start with your over desires. That's what it's really saying. Literally, this, these are super desires. These are super desires. These are uh, um, ultimate emotions. Not just normal emotions, but over the top emotions. Think about your life where you get really cranked up. Think about your life where you really get upset or you've been malicious. Think about your life where you have a tendency to want to slander someone. Think about that and go backwards. Trace that back to where does that come from? Meaning, let's go here. If there's something good in your life, you have to fill in the blank what you think a good thing is. Uh, Getaway weekend, um, uh, ease at work, uh, uh, assuming promotions or this relationship that fill it if a good thing in your life is jeopardized or is going bad or you lose it a normal emotion is this if a good thing in your life is in jeopardy a good emotion is i'm concerned about that if a good thing in your life is uh, going bad it is appropriate for you to be concerned about that. That's emotionally appropriate. And if a good thing in your life is lost, it is absolutely appropriate for us to be sad. But if that good thing is actually a super desire, it actually pulls out all kinds of hyper emotions, then guess what? If that good thing is in jeopardy, then you are paralyzed. If that good thing is going bad, it's not just that you're concerned. It's that you're not even sure what you're gonna do. And you can't get over it. And if that good thing in your life is lost, if it's an idol in your life, in a uber desire, a super desire in your life, and you lose that, you'll end up in despair because you're thinking that you can't live without it. If you love control and someone tells you no, in whatever form that takes, if you love control and someone tells you no, an appropriate response to that is to get mad, maybe to get frustrated. But then you start thinking about, what am I supposed to learn from this? And then you start being able to get over it and moving past it. You get it? If you love control and someone tells you no, it is absolutely appropriate to get upset. It's absolutely appropriate to be like, I, I don't like this. And it's also appropriate to do some reflection and think, what am I supposed to learn? And it's also appropriate to move on. But if being in control is an ultimate thing for you, if being in control is an ultimate desire, then hearing the word no 
is absolutely devastating. And to hear that word no means that immediately there's a sense of bitterness, revenge. Do I need to plug in exact words from Colossians 3? Slander, malice, outbursts. God is really getting after us, isn't he? It's like he's been reading our emails. And he says, what you're supposed to do is put that off. And to do that, you gotta figure out and understand your own idols. Because when you understand your idols, when you, when you look at where you get most excited, most worked up, most frustrated, most happy, and you trace all that back to those, these epi desires that we have, and we realize that we can't even hear the word no without being revengeful, without wanting to slander, without wanting to be malicious, we start realizing Oh, so this is what my whole soul is leaning on. Oh, this is what my heart is attached to. It's this desire. It's this want. And beloved, the Apostle Paul is so, he's of course very wise and and humble and God's done a lot of work in his life. And if you want a real tangible example of what we're talking about here, you can look in Philippians chapter three because Paul lists out there a lot of his epi desires, a lot of things that his emotions were really attached to. Uh, It was his family pedigree. It was his education. It was his effort. It was the reality that he could compare himself to other people and he saw himself as better than other people. It was that he he had a never die attitude. It was that he was on point with what he was supposed to do and he was dedicated and competent and educated and interested and passionate. And guess what? The gospel broke into his life and exposed all that and took it away. And you know what happened when the gospel came into his, to Paul's life and exposed these desires in his life? Guess what? He was ready to kill, persecute, chase down, hunt, And when the gospel came into his life and exposed all that and exposed the fact that he had no contentment in his life and he he was completely wrong about what he thought about God, the gospel replaced all that stuff that his heart was leaning on. The gospel replaced all that thing, all those things that his soul was leaning on and gave him something totally different. So he writes here and says, Put this stuff off because there are always things competing for our heart's attention. There are all kinds of competing saviors for your heart and your soul. And we gotta put some things off. And if you'll allow me to be even more personal here, I wanna give a warning. And I'm saying this as much to myself as I am to anyone who would hear this. This can happen in the church. Not the things that we talked about in normal life, I'm talking about what I'm about to say. You see, there are those of us who really like to be right. There are those of us who not only like to be in control, but like to be right. And what that looks like is this. We become, you hear this point at Dave first? Dave becomes a person that is able to sit under the teaching of God's word and is able to listen to the things of God. 
And because of my desire to be in control and to be right, I become an expert at identifying, well, that's wrong, that's an error, that's heresy, that isn't right. And in doing that, you'll never hear, for a long time, you would never hear me say, whatever the person's teaching, I need that in my life. Get it? There's a sense in which we can desire to be right so much and what comes with that is control so that even when we hear the word of God, all we do is say, well, we identify what's wrong. That's not right, that's not right. But we never say, I need that inside me. I need what you're teaching in my life. And furthermore, can you help me with that? Where I went to school, and how I was taught, the greatest compliment that you ever heard was this. That's a good reminder. Because there was never anything that I ever said that any of them ever, <laughs> I could never teach anyone anything. It was just whether or not I reminded them of something that they already knew. So be warned, this can happen here, in which we think that's right, that's wrong, but be warned, be warned. We need to say, I need that in my life. Can you help me get that truth in my life? And for those of you that may be here and think, ah, I don't even think, I'm not sure I have any idols. You are an amazing person. <laughs> Truly you are. And I have a little experiment for you. And I want to roll this out. You can just watch it go on by or you can think about it. This week, this is my experiment for you. Whatever is going on this week, try for one week. And if that's too long, just try for the rest of today. Uh, don't brag. Don't be defensive. And don't think anything ill about anyone else. And let me know how that goes. If you think you don't have any idols, you're good. See if you can make it 24 hours. Not bragging about yourself, not defending yourself, and having no ill thoughts toward any other person or thing. Paul says, put off. And he also says, put on. Look at verse 10 and 12 through 14. Look at what he says to put on. If we put off this in verse five and verse eight, he says, put this on, verse 10. Listen to this. Put on then, verse 12, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience. Bear with one another, forgive one another, and most of all, in verse 14, put on love. So you see, it's not only that we have to do battle in putting off things, identifying our idols and putting things off, we have to put on. We have to put on compassion and kindness. We have to put on patience. We have to put on forgiveness. That actually means that when situations where we need to forgive, we will forgive. It means that we have to put on love. It means that we are to represent and we are to reflect how Jesus has put on these things for us. That leads us to the third stop on our journey. 
how these verses fit together, what do we need to do, put off, put on, that leads us to this. How are we gonna do this? And by the way, we all want a cheat code. If you have your Bibles, you can look back at the end of chapter two because there were those in the church in Colossae that were trying to give a cheat code and they just gave a list of external things. Don't touch this, don't do that, do this. And Paul says, nope, that won't work. Those are useless, he even says at the end of the chapter, those are useless for fighting the thing inside of you that you really need to fight. That means identifying those idols and fighting against those idols. Those lists that, that, that just tell you external things to do or not do, they don't, they don't get to your heart. Oh, they, they have an appearance of wisdom. They have an appearance of you are something special in the Lord. They have an appearance that people would look at you and think, oh, this person is amazing. But guess what? Inside, bankrupt. Doesn't work. He says it. It doesn't work. So then he turns to chapter three. And he says, verses one through four. You see, Everything in verse five and following is anchored in verses one through four. All the conclusions of putting off and putting on are because of what he says in verses one through four. And that means that we don't need a cheat code. What we need is Jesus and to use our brains. And if you think I'm off, if you just look at verses one through four, you'll see Jesus' name mentioned a lot. And you'll also read this a couple times. Set your minds on things above. You see that? So you take Jesus and you use your brain. Set your mind on something. Think in a certain way. Operate your mind in a certain direction. Take Jesus and use your brain. And here's what that means. It means, let's start with the four-part story and big questions. Follow me on this. If that sounds bizarre, follow me. I'm gonna show you this from these verses. Start with the big questions. Start with the four-part story. Did, did, did Jesus really live? Did, did Jesus die? Did, did Jesus rise again? Do, do, you, do you recognize in your life that you have some idols, some brokenness, some rebellion, some sin? Do you recognize that? Well, well what, what do you think about Jesus? And, and what do you think about whether he lived or died? What do you think about that? Because it really matters. And, and what do you think about his relationship to you? And, and what's your relationship to him? And, and do you have any hope for your own life? Do you have any hope for the, the world and, and what you hope to see happen in the world? Do you have any real substantive hope? Or have you given up and just think this world's all there is and I don't really think about hope too much. I just wanna live the best life I can now. You see, Paul is writing these first four verses to get at those ultimate questions. He even ties all that stuff I just said back into creation. When you look at verse 10, he says you need to put these things on because we're being renewed in the knowledge after the one who created us. So he's wanting us to think about these ultimate questions. And he's wanting us to wrestle with them because this is what he could have said. He could have said, if you believe in Jesus, when you die, one day you'll be raised again when he returns, and you'll be with him forever. And he would have been exactly correct. 
But he doesn't do that, does he, in these, four, in these first four verses? He makes it much more personal. He doesn't say so much, uh, in the future you're going to be resurrected, although that's true. But look at what he says. If then you have, have been raised with Christ. You see that? If you have been raised with Jesus, he even says, you have died. You see it? That's what he says in the first four verses. He's saying if you're ever going to put off things in your life, and you're ever going to put on things in your life, it's not going to come from the list. It's not going to come from your willpower. It's going to come because of what Jesus has done for you. In other words... When Christ died, you died with him. So when he died for your sin, it means that you ought to engage your mind and think about the fact that, oh, I, because of Jesus, I was crucified with Jesus when he was on the cross, and that meant that my sin was going to die. It meant that my rebellion against God was going to die because Jesus was dying in my place. And so I ought to consider my sin dead. Now just know that means in principle. Because we all are going to continue to sin until Jesus comes back. But he's saying that the dominion of that, the power of that sin has been broken. So that we can consider ourselves and we identify our idols as being crucified with Christ. So that we can say this uber desire that I have can find its death in Jesus on the cross. And that means that I can put off all this selfishness. I can put off just thinking that, oh, I can satisfy every desire that I want. We can actually fight against some of our desires. Does anyone have any unwanted desires? I do. The only way that that's going to be dealt with is for me to take it to the cross. I can't just stop it. I have to take all that I am to the gospel, to Jesus, and use my mind. And I have to see that my sin, even my desires, were, were nailed to the tree. And I've died to them because of Jesus. And I can put them to death. I can put them off. I can fight against them because of Jesus. And it means that I've been raised with Christ. Will Dave be raised again one day? Yep. But it says right here, if you have been raised with Christ, first phrase of verse one, we are to consider ourselves as being resurrected when Christ walked out of the tomb. So that in my life, if I realize I'm not really a compassionate person, I'm not really patient, I, I'm struggling to forgive here or there, I struggle to put on love, it means that connecting my life to the resurrection of Jesus, I can put on compassion, I can put on patience, I can put on kindness, I can put on forgiveness, and even love. Because I see myself as existing and living in union with Jesus Christ. Do you see how that works? Paul could have said, if you just believe when you die, you'll be raised one day. He, he goes deeper than that. He's like, what do you think about Jesus? What do you think he's really done for you? 
because the glory of the gospel and the glory of God's grace is that we get to live as if our sin and our rebellion has actually died and that we are raised to new life and my life is hidden with Christ in God. That's really encouraging, isn't it? That's hopeful. That means that you can put this to use this week because my guess is you're gonna have ample opportunities like I will, ample opportunity every day to face situations and think, all right, I say that I'm a follower of Jesus. All right, that means that I need to think about this situation from the vantage point of I've been crucified and I've been given new life and my whole life is hid with Christ and God. So in those moments when you're tempted to, uh, you know, slander someone, malicious, lash out in anger, parents, any, parents, are you anticipating any struggle with your children this week? Those of you in the professional uh, world, are, are you expecting a conflict-free work environment this week? You already, you know what's coming? And this is useful. You can think about it like changing clothes. You all know that I like to exercise and play tennis. And let me tell you, in these summer days, and even somewhat now, even though it feels a lot better outside, it's hot out there. And when I go play, I sweat through my clothes. And guess what? It's nasty and it stinks. And Jenny doesn't like me to come in the house that way. So I have to change my clothes. I have to put off what's nasty and stinky. And I have to put on what's clean. I have to put on what is fresh. I have to put on what's good. And this week, in all of our situations, because of what Christ has done, we get to put stuff off and put on other things. All because of what Christ has done for us. Which is what brings us to the table.